And something my dad instilled in us and my mom was all about building those relationships and about, you know, treat the treat the employees well, treat the customer well, and treat the grower well. Right. And even the guy that hauls the trucker that hauls the produce in, tough job, truckers. Yeah. You know, everybody hates trucks on the road because they take up all this room. That's a very tough job. It's a very tough job, but it's critical mm -hmm. because it's how you get the product from the farm to the end customer. It all gets done on a truck. So, but that my dad had, a, and my mom instilled this this, uh, I guess, value system of treating everybody really well. From the studios of Kink Radio, it's the Portland 50, a podcast series about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The Portland 50 series is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution, serving our community since 1950. I'm your host, Peggy LaPointe. Today, I talk with David Namarnik, CEO of Pacific Coast Fruits, a company founded by his father. Pacific Coast Fruits is a produce distributor that started in the historic Produce Row over four decades ago. David is also the owner and manager of Aloro Vineyards in the Chehalem Mountains. Well, the story that as I understand it, he was one of 11. He was uh, number 10 of 11, so he was second to the youngest. And it was before World War II had broken out. And um, I think the idea was to send him abroad to get an education over in America, possibly to come home again. I don't really know. That, of course, we'll never know for sure. Mm -hmm. But he came over with his uncle and, like you said, left his family, which we've, uh, you know, over the years, we always asked, what was that like, you know? And um, it was... It had to be hard. Yeah. I mean, ten-year-old ten kid coming over on a this boat. But he, he, I have a nineteen-year-old daughter, and one of the things I was really uh, fortunate to be able to do was drive my dad into work as he got older and he couldn't drive. He worked till he was eighty-five years old, and he couldn't drive. You know, the last few years, and um, and my and he would tell us stories about when he was a child about his remembering back where he was born, which is right on the. It's, it's now part of Croatia. When he was mm -hmm. born, it was part of Italy, but it's basically that that northwestern uh, Croatia where it's very close to Trieste, Italy, the village he's from. And so um, he would tell stories about how he would, you know, they'd take the cart with the ox to church and it was really cold, but they got the, they, they bundled up and they rode in this ox cart to church on Easter. Remember how cold it was? And he'd have these little memories. He'd pop out these little stories, which I thought was really neat that my daughter could hear them because yeah. I would, was taking her into school at the same right. time. And so he had these memories going way back, but at 10 years old, he comes to America with an uncle. He lived in Northwest Portland off of Gleason Street. Mm -hmm. It was um, a neighborhood in that part of town. And after he was here, I believe about, he was here a couple of years and he came home one day and, and his uncle had died in his sleep. Mm -hmm. So then he was like, okay, now what do I do? So he, he ended up living with some distant relatives. The, I guess the, he went to cathedral grade school in Northwest Portland. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, through the parish and the priest, they found some relatives um, over in northeast Portland. And uh, he lived with them over in that part of town. And uh, in summers, um, because, again, he was kind of pretty much raising himself, uh, he worked on farms down in the uh, Willamette Valley. I think World War II was going on, and so labor was very tight. Right. So he would go down and work on these farms down in Harrisburg for the Sersowski family. That was the name of the family. We got, we got to meet him when I was kids. Yeah. He took us down to meet the family. So he worked on this farm shucking corn and doing things they did on farms down there back then. Hmm. 
So that was kind of his experience growing up was kind of um, he finished high school in three years because the war was still going and he wanted to be able to finish high school before he got drafted. And of course, then the war ended and he didn't end up going to serve overseas and uh, went to a local university here, the University of Portland, met my mom. They got married and I have four siblings, there's five of us. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of my dad's story. But as far as his coming to Portland, making a life for himself, that's really kind of how it evolved. He's he had some very, um, very good people in his life here that helped him. Yeah. And uh, met my mother, who, you know, was, they were a wonderful partnership. So people, the community sort of guided him along the way. Because I have an 11-year-old, and I I just think, wow, I, I can't imagine him going halfway around the world. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that part of the story fascinated me, definitely. He worked as you mentioned in the summer, on farms, but he was also working to put himself through college, working at a grocery store, working in produce? That is, that's correct. When he was going to the University of Portland to help put himself through school, he, um, he worked at a grocery store, and then he worked in the produce department. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was kind of liked it, thought it was interesting, I guess. He met my mother, and they, they became married, and um, her father was in the produce business, mm-hmm. as was her grandfather. Right. Italian immigrants, that's, that's what they did. They yep. worked in produce, or they farmed, or they, they opened restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in any event, um, and that parlayed into uh, eventually working for his father-in-law. Okay. So who had a company called Pacific Coast Fruit. And my dad left for a while and went to work for another brokerage company in town, um, a produce brokerage company, and... There was some there was some tension. Uh, my grandfather, my grandmother had a, went through a divorce, mm. and of course, in the Italian community, that was really back then. Right. That was taboo, and this was right after my parents had gotten married. But eventually, my dad went back and helped him run the company, and then my grandfather liquid he closed the company up. He sold it, and liquidated. Uh, my dad then went to work for some other cousins of the family uh, that had a company called Pioneer Fruit. Really wonderful, wonderful. My it was my grandma's side of the family. Mm-hmm. And uh, wonderful people, and my dad worked there. But he had this—he had this strong desire, I think, to kind of control his own destiny. And I think my mom—I mean, they—they they were a great team. My mom was; she was a very, very sharp businesswoman too. They were a wonderful team. My dad was more of the quiet, strong type. My mom was—she was more of the firecracker. She was the one who. <laughs> Well, got things done. Well, I, I will say this about my mom. There was no one better at collecting money than my mother. <laughs> I mean, she had a way of being able to collect a debt that was past due and do it in a way that kept the friendship or right. kept the customer intact but still got the money. Firm so, hand. So, yeah, she had the firm hand, but she did it with finesse. There was, right. There's an art to that, she yes. says. She'll tell you that today. She's still alive. She's 89. And she'll tell you today there's, a, there's an art to uh, how, you, how you work with people. There sure is. So. There sure is. At the age of 50, so you were talking about he wanted to control his own destiny. That's when he took that leap. Right, right. I remember my dad, my dad came to me and I had, I had actually, when my dad was working with my grandfather, it was my summer of my senior year of high school. It was the, right before they closed the company and a buyer had left. He'd quit. I mean, I think he got wind something was happening. So he left and my dad asked me, do you want to learn how to buy? I said, absolutely, you know, 
because before that I was down the cellar bagging potatoes <laughs> and unloading real cars, 100-pound potatoes and, right. and watermelons and other things that were quite heavy. So I thought, this is great. <laughs> I, I, was, I was in hog heaven. So I learned how to buy. Yeah. And I kind of had an act for it. I just had a natural kind of ability to, uh, I just, it just resonated with me. I kind of thought the business was fun. It was fast paced. It was always changing because you're dealing with agricultural products. Never and they're, they're grown in that you have the weather, you have transportation, logistics, all these things that can create drama. Chaos. <laughs> yeah, chaos, drama. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, bet it, I liked it, though. I loved managing that chaos and logistics. And you'd have the phone by your bed at night, and a trucker would call you up at 2 in the morning. I'm at the shed, and, you know, the cantaloupes aren't ready. Well, you got to keep rolling. We need those strawberries because we got people that have had those on a promotion. you got to keep rolling. I'll have someone else pick up those cantaloupes. And you hang up the phone, you'd call somebody else. Hey, I need you to make another stop. <laughs> uh, so it was, uh, it, it's, it was a fast-paced, fun business. It still is, actually. Yeah. There's still an element that's the same today that but obviously we have computers and technology right. and everything else and software programs. But the basics are still the same. Cantaloupe's still don't ready sometimes exactly. at 2 o'clock in the morning. Exactly <laughs> right. Well said. <laughs> uh, he mortgaged the house. He uh, sold the car, took out a loan, started Pacific Fruit. Right, um, right. In 1977. Right. You and your brother helped along with your mom. Right. Started right. off. Exactly. Dad sat down and said, hey, do you want to open a family business? And he said, sure, let's do it. I was a freshman in college at that time at the University of Portland. It was, it was my, it was actually, I was a sophomore, excuse me. It was my sophomore year. Halloween day, we opened up Pacific Coast Fruit Company. And, and, and as you said, my parents mortgaged their house, sold their car, emptied the piggy banks out, and they started this little business. It was a 6,000-square-foot building, and we had two very used delivery trucks. They were <laughs> very used. Well-loved. And well-loved <laughs> delivery trucks. And that's how we got started. And mm. I remember that first day. And then we had a – so it was my mom, my dad, my brother, myself, and then Mr. Bacilieri. And he had two sons, Michael and Paul. So that was our crew. That was the whole company. Wow. Oh, and then Billy, who did the books, and my mom. They ran the office. So that was the, that was a complete company. Yeah, very streamlined. Yeah. And you were just on inner southeast. Yeah, we were on the corner of Second Stark. That was our first location. Yes, and you were there for a while. Correct. Yeah, we were there for ten years. Okay. Yeah, for ten years, and then we moved. The city of Portland had some property that the Portland Development Commission had bought, and the mm -hmm. the concept back in the day was to build a terminal market because that that was the old model. There were terminal markets in the metro areas, and then. Right grocers and, and farmers would deliver their products there and grocers would pick up their products there. And so it was kind of a consolidated Have it all together. market of different vendors, all in kind of like a condominium type mm -hmm. warehouse building. And so the city had bought this, this property and then the, um, the recession hit in the, uh, in the early eighties. Um, we had the, you know, 18% prime rates. And of course the Northwest being a timber and agricultural based economy back then, right. it, I mean, there was, net immigration in 1980 from Oregon. There was more people moving out of Oregon than moving into it. Yeah. And um, so it was a really tough time. So the city, that project fell apart. But the city put that property up for sale. We were able to buy part of it. And that's where our existing building is now, just on 2nd Avenue north of the Burnside Bridge. Mm -hmm. And I drive by it. You drive by it when you're on I-5. Yeah. And for a long time, I mean, I noticed the Pacific Fruit, the Pacific Coast Fruit uh, logo. It's fruit. Uh -huh. And then I noticed the solar panels on there. Yeah. 
And I thought, well, that's a nice addition. <laughs> uh, so you've been there for a while. You have been the CEO for just a couple of years. Uh, yeah. When your yeah. when your dad passed away. Right. Correct. Is it your sister that still works? Uh, my sister Nancy still works. Yes. yes that's and your mom? Does she still? My mom. Um, she doesn't come down very often. But uh, when I go to visit her, and she still lives in her own home, she she doesn't get around like she used to, but uh, she, there's still a lot going on upstairs, I'll tell you. And yeah. she wants to know what's going on at work. Mm-hmm. She loves hearing about the new projects and, you know, how this particular customer is doing or how that new salesperson's doing. And she loves to hear the story. Yeah. You mentioned customers. The customer base obviously has grown, uh, and your employees have grown, and the company has grown. How many of these same customers from the 70s, early 80s do you still have now? And same with farms. I would imagine some of the same farms are producing the fruit and vegetables that you then. That's, I think, more so on the grower-shipper side than the customer side. There's been so many mergers and acquisitions and consolidation on the retail, particularly the retail side. When I say retail side, I mean like the grocery store side. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the independent Grocers that you had 50 years ago or 40 years ago, they really, they've either sold out or got yeah. bought up by somebody else or merged. So we don't, there's not as much, um, I say, consistency on the customer side, but on the grower shipper side, we have relationships that go back when my dad was dealing with their dads. Yeah. And now we're dealing with the sons or the grands or the, or the granddaughters or the, the next generation. Right. So it's kind of neat to see that we have growers in California uh, that go back again as long as my dad's been in the business. I mean, it goes back that far before we opened up our own family business. And that's got to be neat to see. They're, they've grown as, as you have grown. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's that adds, a, that I think is probably one of the things I think that make the business so enjoyable is the relationships you build. Yeah. You have these relationships you go down and there's a gentleman named Don Stewart and uh, they have a, they have a Company called Turlock Fruit in Turlock, California. Hmm. They grow. They have some. They grow some of the best flavored melons you're going to buy anywhere. We've been buying melons from Don Stewart and his family for years and years. Don is 80, 88, I believe, or eighty nine. I, w- I was down at his farm a couple of years ago, and I was just. It's inspiring to see this man. It's amazing. Yeah. He's still on it, and he's energetic, and he's out, and we're out in the field, and he's pulling up stuff and showing us what it looks like. And he has as much passion for that business as he did probably 50 years ago. Do you get out to these uh, farms often? Do you make a regular trip to all the farms that? Uh, uh, I don't go to see all the farms, but I, I do enjoy visiting the farms. Yeah, I enjoy that part. I have a natural interest in agriculture. And so um, I really enjoy walking the dirt. That's because that's really where it all starts. It's all, it all starts with the grower because a cantaloupe isn't just a cantaloupe. There are, I mean, the right ground, the right grower, the right seed, the right genetics, the right attention to detail, and you get a really good piece of fruit. Right, now, consistently. Of course, of course, there's weather and challenge, even the best growers, but there, there's, there's a melon, and then there's a melon. And so that's, or there's a peach, and then there's a peach. Right. And I always tell, you know, when we have new young people join our company, we strive to do that because we need that next generation of bright people. I always tell them, if you can get excited about a beautiful load of peaches coming in, you can smell those peaches on that truck, and you cut into one and you see how nice it is, now you know you're a produce guy. Yeah, so. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and with those, the generational aspect of these farms as well, that knowledge gets handed down just naturally. 
you know, as the next generations see uh, their parents and grandparents working in the farm. Yeah, and of course, you know, we've got wonderful ag universities on the West Coast here. Right. California, and you got Fresno State, you got UC Davis, you got Cal Poly, you got Oregon State University. I mean, that is, I mean, progress and innovation is part of any any right. business, and agriculture is just, is is the same. And the sustain the way to farm sustainably, and start and and grow products that people are really going to enjoy eating. I think that's where the the genetics and and looking for that variety that's going to give people that satisfaction and that uh, that experience you want them to have. That's that's just all part of the of innovation and progress in any in any kind of an endeavor. Well, the sustainability aspect that you mentioned, looking at your website. There's a lot that uh, Pacific Coast Fruit has done. Uh, you collect organic, uh, and I'm just going to mention a few of them. Sure. The sustainable practices that you've ta- taken on. You carry organic and local, Oregon and Washington and California to some right. degree. You collect organic waste to use as animal feed, so that's with the fresh cut and with produce that Correct. comes in. Uh, your Seattle warehouse, I forgot to mention the Seattle warehouse that you have. Uh, has the 360 cubic foot bioswale that protects the nearby wetlands and trails. I mentioned the solar panels in Portland here. Uh, you buy organic when possible. And uh, greener fields together. That's something that uh, caught my attention. It promotes sustainability upstream. And that's something that you're involved with as, and I know I'm jumping ahead of myself, uh, but that's something that you're involved with as executive board for PROACT. Correct, correct. So yeah, tell Pro- me about that. PROACT is a cooperative that we're part of. There's 35 members across the United States. Mm-hmm. And basically the idea behind it is it, it is set up like a cooperative. And and so we have a, uh, a buying office in Monterey, California. Okay. We have a uh, specialty company in uh, Los Angeles and one in Miami. And so the idea behind PROACT and the reason we joined is that it gives us uh, an independent small company the ability to compete on a national basis. Mm-hmm. And we do have national chains here of restaurants, and a good part of our business is also servicing the um, restaurants in the area. And so back when we joined PROACT, this is going back oh, probably 12 or gosh, 14 years ago now, um, the idea behind it was that we better you know, belong to something that gives us a little bit of leverage out there in the marketplace or resources that maybe we can't afford to do ourselves because right. we're small. And um, they have, again, cooperative buying office where they'll negotiate a contract, let's say, on a lot of things that are contracted quite a bit right now are processed items. Okay. And let's say a particular restaurant wants a price negotiated on processed lettuce. Mm-hmm. And PROACT can do that for us instead of our buyers getting on the phone and negotiating with a bunch of people to try and get a contract at a certain price. PROACT can do that for us. Okay. There's a big food safety component to PROACT. And so with our, all of our systems, there can be a, a nationwide recall in a moment's notice. Now, this isn't a commercial for PROACT, but they do some very important things, which is why we joined. Yeah. And uh, we probably aren't the ideal customer for PROACT, if I was going to be frank, because being on the West Coast, we're very close to the growing areas. Mm-hmm. We have growing areas all around the yeah. metro area. We have the Columbia Gorge, Hood River, Washington right. State, Columbia Basin. So we're very close to growing areas, and we have always been fiercely proud and independent about how we buy and the relationships we build with growers. Mm-hmm. And we kind of looked at Proact in a way as kind of being a, a, a in between us and the growers. And it's really not true because they do they really do some things that really help us, particularly with these big 
big um, growers that have large processing plants, and you really need it's just a lot of it's a lot of work to get those contracts in place. So it, it but it's not it doesn't drive it's a small part of our business. Yeah, that's kind of product related. It's a very small part. We really we've got a really really wonderful staff of people I work with, and and something my dad instilled in us and my mom was all about building those relationships and about you know treat the treat the employees well, treat the customer well, and treat the grower well. Right. And even the guy that hauls the trucker that hauls the produce in tough job truckers. Yeah. You know everybody hates trucks on the road because they take up all this room. That's a very tough job. It's a very tough job, but it's critical mm-hmm. because it's how you get the product from the farm to the end customer. It all gets done on a truck. So, but that my dad had a, and my mom instilled this this um, I guess value system of treating everybody really well. And if you treat everybody really well, you know you'll be successful. Just it may it's more of a long game mm-hmm. versus you know how do we maximize a short game? It's more of a long game. My dad was very much a long game player. It's all about okay. You do this, stay on track, don't deviate. You know, from your value system, you're going to go long term, you're going to do well. You're listening to King's Portland 50 series. I'll continue my conversation with David Namarnik in a moment, but I wanted to thank our sponsor. The Portland 50 series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Now back to my conversation with David Namarnik, CEO of Pacific Coast Fruits, a company founded by his father. Pacific Coast Fruits is a produce distributor that started in the historic Produce Row over four decades ago. David is also the owner and manager of Aloro Vineyards in the Chehalem Mountains. So proactive started this Greener Fields Together initiative. And the idea was that we want our vendors mm-hmm. around the country, our, all of our, own, our owner partners, to really collaborate with local growers. And we want to bring that to our, to our customers, whether it's a national chain or it's a mom-and-pop grocery store or a one-off chef-driven restaurant. We want to bring that local produce to that. We really think it's important that we support local growers. Mm-hmm. Now, as I said before, we probably aren't the typical ProAct customer because we already did that. We had already done that. It was something, so it, but it has really helped because other parts of the country, it wasn't as common as it is out here. I mean, here people are very local, very into local, sustainable. We're kind of leading the, we're kind of the leading edge on the West Coast. Yeah. But the rest of the country has been catching up, and it's become very popular now. I mean, the local growers and supporting the local growers and working with that, I mean, that supply chain being as close as it can possibly be is really a benefit, beneficial thing for everybody. All of these sustainable initiatives they've become a part of who you are. How did that come about? What was the conversation behind that? And when was it that the company felt this is the direction we need to be? Or has, or was that something that your dad and your family and the company just sort of always tracked onto? I think, I think it's, um, you know, we were always pretty thrifty. Yeah. We were always very thrifty. And, um, didn't want to waste anything, and I think, I think as recycling became important and renewable energy became important and carbon footprint and all these things, I think it was just part of our value system. It was just that's kind of in our D- It was just kind of in our DNA. Yeah, it's just something that, you know, we can always do better. I think that's always you know continu- right. continuous improvement is something everybody wants to embrace. But I think it was just part of our value system from mm-hmm. from the get go. It's just something we came. Na- it came. It was easy for us to embrace. 
right. and appreciate. And I think, again, in this part of the country, it's something we're kind of ahead of the curve. Yeah. Uh, it's easier to do it here. Right. I mean, it's when, I, when, take I, on the when I have, I've had friends visit from California, which I consider a very progressive state. Yeah. And they'll I have a guest room and they'll stay in the house and they'll put their bottles in the garbage can. And I'm go, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't go there. <laughs> it, it's funny. We take it for granted. But you it's, go uh, anywhere around the country and it's interesting. Yeah. We, we definitely have a, a much, uh, we have a very um, uh, sustainable vibe in this in this part of the country. Yeah. It, it's innate. Yeah. In, it, it is part of the fabric of Portland in many ways. Well, and, and a lot of these sustainability practices, they are thrifty and they are long game. Because when you think of all the waste that could be going to the landfill, uh, that the, that right. produce is going to animal feed and, exactly. and what have you. And the solar panels in the long run are saving you money because that's beating the electricity aspect of it. It sounds like it is very much a part of Pacific Coast fruit fabric because it aligns with a lot of the value system. The other thing that you mentioned and that I had read about was your parents' belief that you treat everybody well. Had that not been the case, 41 years later, 42 years later, we wouldn't be sitting here talking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I truly believe that. I think, I think that, uh, you know, attracting and keeping good people is very important. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a team of people. I mean, you know, family, there was, you know, three or four of us. We have 550 employees now. So we have some really s- talented, smart, passionate people that are really good at what they do, that are fun to work with. And have created a lot of success for the company and created success for themselves and their families. And that's sustainable. That's good stuff. In addition to what you're doing, which is the big role, CEO at Pacific Coast Fruit, the other interesting aspect about your life is a winery that you run, operate in the Shehala Mountains, Aloro. The part that I found fascinating is, you know, this isn't, isn't just a whim for you. You were Fermenting wine as a high schooler? Yeah, I, you know, um, <laughs> I guess, yeah, I, I was fermenting yeah. uh, wines when I was in high school. I think I had, as I mentioned earlier, I had kind of a natural interest in agriculture. Right. I was the kid, we had, again, I had four siblings. I was the kid who grew the big garden and who raised the chickens and the rabbits. And it's just kind of something that was interesting to me. And I was also the kid that hung around the kitchen. I wanted to learn how to, I loved to eat. Mm-hmm. I had a good appetite as a kid and uh, and a strong appreciation for well-cooked meals. And I had a wonderful Italian mother and a Sicilian grandmother who were good cooks. And so <laughs> Can't go I grew up around some really good food. And yeah. so I remember asking my grandma, hey, how do you make an apple pie? I was about 10 years old, 11 years old. So she taught me how to make an apple pie. So I became an apple pie making machine. It was kind of a natural interest. So food and doing things in the with food or, or, with, or with things that you consume just I had a strong interest, and then I discovered fermentation, and you mm-hmm. could take you know apples and ferment them and make hard cider, and I thought that was pretty interesting. That was probably in my my mid-teens then, mm-hmm. and um, I had some friends whose Italian grandfather made homemade wine, and I thought that was just fascinating. Yeah. So I'd start fermenting anything, get my hands on, and <laughs> and I it was it was interesting. Some of it. Was, some of it actually didn't turn out too bad. Made some peach <laughs> wine one time that actually wasn't too bad. So it was just a natural interest of mine. And mm-hmm. so that kind of carried forward um, into, I guess, eventually having a winery yeah. interest in agriculture. Because right. I've, always, I've always thought someday I'm going to have a farm. I'm going I'm to farm. Mm. 
And after I got out of college, of course, I was working full-time in the business all through school, continuing that whole pattern uh, into my early 20s and and, uh, late 20s and in my 30s. And I had this idea I wanted to, at some point, farm. My dad used to bring in wine grapes Mm -hmm. from California. And he'd bring in these 35-pound wooden lugs of grapes. And Mm. every Croatian and Italian that still made homemade wine in the metro area would come down and pick up their their, their pickup load of wine grapes to make their homemade wine. Well, one year there was a pallet left over of Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm. So it was about probably about close to maybe three-quarters of a ton worth of grapes. And somehow somebody had misordered or whatever happened. But I told my dad, I'll take them. So I went up to Steinbart's up on in southeast Portland. There's a wine and homemade brewer's uh, store. So I bought a book on winemaking and homemade home winemaking, <laughs> I should say. And I uh, bought a wine press and a couple of fermenters and wow. put my gym shorts on and squished. <laughs> Everybody's got to make wine with their feet at least one time. So, yeah. so I squished up all these grapes and I was living in a townhouse in northwest Portland. And I had these in my driveway and my neighbors thought I was some kind of a nut. But, uh, you know, it actually turned out surprisingly well. Really? It, was, uh, sur- it actually turned out, sur- for homemade wine, it was not bad. Nice. And so that was kind of the start of my interest in, in really like, okay, I remember how much fun that was back in my teens. This is really fun. And so then eventually, again, go- going forward a few more years, I finally was able to buy a piece of ground mm-hmm. in 1999. I, it was a 40-acre piece of ground that was owned. It wasn't actually the to kind of tell you the story about how I found the dirt because the dirt's very important. The site's really important. Absolutely. I had been working with a realtor named Mike McLean out of Albany and we'd been lurking for property up and down the Willamette Valley. And um, I used to bike a lot and I used to ride throughout the Chainland Mountains. I remember this one piece of ground I was able to drink my water bottle before it would this, and, and get back on my bike, watch the sunset and get home before it got dark. So when we were looking at property, I told Mike, I said, Mike, I know of a really nice piece of ground. I want to, tell him I to show it to you. Yeah. And so I showed it to him, and, and he said, boy, it looks like a Class A site. Let's get the soil tested. Is it for sale? I said, let me find out. Well, it was owned by a gentleman who lived in Shasta, California, mm-hmm. and um, his name was Ralph Trevor. And I had called on that property about five or six years earlier, but I didn't have the money to buy it. But I called up and I found out who owned it. He lived down in Shasta and he inherited it from his uncle who had homesteaded the property. And he was in his 80s. And I'd called him up and said, you know, do you want to sell that property? He said, well, make me an offer. And I said, well, I don't know what it's worth, but I really don't have any money right now. But someday if I do, I'm going to call you back. Well, about seven, eight years later, I called him back. Oh, that's great. And we, uh, I made him an offer. He turned me down. I called him next week. I made another offer. He told me I'm going to keep it for my grandkids, but thank you. I called him the next week with my final offer. I said, <laughs> Ralph, if this doesn't work, it's not meant to be. He says, you got a deal. Wow. So the grandkids were out and I got the property. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's nice. That's but nice. We put, I planted the first 20 acres back in 1999 and uh, focusing on Pinot Noir initially. Mm-hmm. Now we grow some Chardonnay, some Riesling. We have a little Muscat. We're up to 33 acres of vines. It's definitely a passion. It's a wonderful combination of art and science. It, it touches all the, all the buttons for me. I really, I enjoy the whole process. I, uh, I do the farming. I manage the vineyard myself. Wow. I work with a wonderful foreman David, named David Lopez. I have a winemaker. He's a very talented, wonderful guy named Tom Fitzpatrick. He's got <laughs> a master's of enology and viticulture from UC Davis. And Tom has been on board at Laurel since 2010, does a wonderful job of uh, crafting Pinot Noir. Um, and, of course, it's so enjoyable because there's that collaboration in the vineyard 
between the, the growing and the winemaking and the two of us getting together and talking about how we're going to manage that vineyard. And, <laughs> and in the end, wine is really, when you want to make an, you know, we want to make a, you know, a, um, we call it a, you know, a world-class Pinot Noir. It's really the culmination of many, many little details throughout the growing season, little decisions, things being done at the right time. And at the end, all those little decisions and activities they all manifest themselves in the end of this vintage, mm-hmm. and that's exciting. When, yeah. that, when those grapes come in, you see and you see that juice, and you're you're getting an idea with the texture and the flavors of what the potential is. Very exciting. It's it's a it's a fun process. It it's, sounds every like every year it. is unique. It's again, you're playing with weather, you're dealing with variables, mm-hmm. decisions. How do we manage the vineyard this year versus how we managed it last year? All very 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 enjoyable. And you bottled first in 2001. Uh, 2002. 2002. Was, was our first okay. vintage. So uh, after three years of planting. Yeah, after three, you got, you got your, I was a, what we call a baby crop, and then we just kind of grown from there. And we're, we're a boutique. We're a boutique producer. We do right. about 3,000 cases of wine. Um, we kind of call it our little art project. And it's, it's, <laughs> we micromanage everything. Yeah. It's, and you've grown from the 40 acres that originally you purchased, correct? Yes. Now I've got on the property 110 acres. Yeah, we talked about yeah. we talked about this before the microphones came on. It is not just a winery; it's a full-fledged farm. Uh, yes, we have uh, we have a herd of registered Herefords. My daughter started raising Herefords when she was eleven, twelve. Right before she turned twelve, she decided she wanted to do a four-H project, mm-hmm. and so she bought a heifer because a heifer mm-hmm. is going to have babies, right. and you don't have to sell it for meat. And so she wanted to, didn't want to do that thing. <laughs> so now we've got a herd of Herefords. Uh-huh. And uh, so we do have those in the property. We make our own hay. We have a, a herd of sheep, a mm-hmm. pair of sheep that uh, David, my foreman, raises on the property. And uh, we have a large, very large extended garden. I mean, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's, it's a good-sized garden. We do, a, we do some uh, chef collaborations at the farm, and we supply the vegetables out of the garden nice. for, the, for the farm dinners. It's, it's fun. And yeah. You have that uh, one in September, the annual whole farm dinner, yes. where 90% yes. of what is at the table comes from your property. Exactly. Which it, has got to be a whole lot of fun. It's, it's a really fun dinner. Yeah. I mean, people really enjoy it. We bring out a couple of talented chefs, and um, we'll cook this dinner, and, it's, and we'll pair it with different wines, different courses, and it's, it's a lot of fun. It's in a very relaxed setting, but... Yeah but done really well. And you've taken many of the sustainable practices to this farm. Uh, it's a dry, what, what, how do you say that? Uh, well, a dry we are a dry farm. We don't, yeah. yeah, we don't irrigate the vines. And sustainably um, farmed as well. We're LIVE certified. LIVE mm-hmm. is an acronym for Low Input Viticulture and Enology. And it's, it's a sustainable farming methodology. It's very, the goals of LIVE is very similar to organic. It's just, it's a science-based program. So they'll use some synthetic materials mm-hmm. where organic doesn't, but the goal is the same. It's a sustainable program. We're certified salmon safe, which means we don't use any harsh chemistry that can get into the watershed and yeah. damage salmon or fish in the, in the rivers and oceans. So it's a, right. I, it resonates with me again, because if you're looking at this property, you think, well, I want this farm to produce world-class Pinot Noir 50 years or 100 years from now. Well, you've, you've got to I mean, our, I always figure our goal is to enhance the property, make it better than it was when we found it. Right, right. And, and when you're enriching the soil through natural practices, right. the soil will return those gifts yes, it's, to you it's, in so many ways. It's all, about, um, it's all about, again, having that long-term perspective. Each of your roles are full-time jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, it keeps me, uh, I do stay on the busy side. Yes. Um, but 
I'm kind of wired that way. I like projects. And I like mm-hmm. I like being busy, and I like I like the challenges of this. How can we improve? How can we get better? Right. How can we How can we um, enhance that particular project or that particular activity and, and make it even better than it is now? I love seeing people become successful. Mm-hmm. I work with some really talented people. To see them, we see you see a young bright person come into the organization or get involved in a business and to see them create success for themselves and help the business move forward and they learn and grow and mm-hmm. they and they and they're adding their talents and their contribution. Right. That's just it just makes for a very satisfying way to spend your time. With that idea of innovation along the way, what kind of innovations have you put forth and and what are you thinking sort of long term there? Cuz I don't know what what kind of growth and innovation you can see in in Pacific Coast Coast Fruit, for example. Well, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, things change at a rapid pace, right. more so now than before. Mm-hmm. So we're always. Um, it's kind of funny. I, my brother-in-law Tom Bergato, our president, and my sister Nancy, you know, we talk about the business. You know, and you know, it's a very capital-intensive business. Yeah. I mean, refrigerated trucks are expensive, warehouses are expensive. Processing equipment is expensive. Everything is Everything very. Costs, software yeah. is expensive. So there's a it, there's a lot of expenses involved in in uh, keeping a business like that moving forward. But we do have to keep it moving forward. So the question you ask is a great one. We're looking at what is the next opportunity? What are people going to be looking for? My sister Nancy came into the business when she got out of college. She got an education degree and decided she wanted to join the family business and launched our processing division, which mm-hmm. is slicing and dicing fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And now it's a very good, it's probably about 20% of our business now and growing. Because when you go to the grocery store, you might be busy, but I can buy that butternut squash already cut up in little cubes and ready to go or that stir fry mix or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's become a very important part of the business, something that we've kind of, I guess, um, continued to invest in. The food service side I'd mentioned, I mentioned retail stores when we first started talking. We sold a lot of grocery stores, but now it's more regional chains and or national chains that we deal with mm-hmm. versus this one one off mom and pop yeah. store. But restaurants, we decided a few years ago that we really wanted to be a place where a chef-driven restaurant in Portland could go to get the kind of quality service and creativity they needed. And so we hired people that were chefs or had a passion for food or a, or a knowledge in agronomy or horticulture so we could be more of those chefs because Portland food seems dynamic. Yes. And the food these people fix is amazing, but they need fresh ingredients. They need yeah. local ingredients. They need, they need things maybe they hadn't heard of before. Mm-hmm. And so those are the kind of things that we try and bring to the table. It might be that, that variety of white peaches we found at a small farm over in northeastern Oregon that they hadn't tasted before. They right. go, oh, my gosh, I've got an idea for this. And so that's what we try and bring to the table. So that innovation, we look for new products. I was on an airplane recently. I was, talk, I was sitting next to a young woman whose family grows hops, and she was talking about hop sprouts. I had never heard of them. Mm. And these sprouts could be culinary. And I was, now, didn't get to finish the conversation, so I don't know exactly where <laughs> that was all going. But you keep your ear to the ground yeah. about what is out there that's going gonna, gonna to delight a chef or delight a, someone going into a restaurant when, right. they, when they have a meal served by somebody who's extremely creative. And I would imagine for you as a foodie, being in Portland, surrounded by foodies, surrounded by chefs who love 
the fact that we have fertile soil here and can grow so many different varieties of fruits and vegetables, that's got to be, I mean, you're in the right place oh, at the this, right time. Oh, my gosh. We're an hour and a half from the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. We've got, you know, this fertile Willamette Valley. We've got yeah. the Columbia Gorge Hood River and those in areas nearby growing all this, you know, Savi's Islands. What? Savi's Islands, what, 10 miles from Portland? Yeah. And if that. you've got this little, you know, garden of incredible soil. They grow all kinds of fresh berries and vegetables. So we live in a really cool area. If you're into food and you're into <laughs> fresh and you're into flavors, it's a pretty good place to live. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we mentioned 41, 42 years for Pacific Coast fruit. It's been almost 20 years for a laurel. Mm-hmm. I got to ask, is there anything else you're thinking about doing? Do you have time for anything else? Well, I, I didn't. Um, we, a few years ago, back in 2004, um, I opened up a Loro in 99. In 2004, I was down in South America. We were importing asparagus out of Peru. That's the you know complimentary season to the, to mm-hmm. the, because it's their summers when it's our winter. Right. And so it was becoming an item that was becoming popular down there. And to make a long story short, we just couldn't find a decent supply chain. That growers would make a commitment, then they would renege. And uh, but there was one grower down there, a gentleman named Adolfo Valle, and uh, he had a small farm and a packing house, and wonderful man to work with. Very smart. He's a, he's an agronomist. Went to university there in Lima. Lima had a very has a very respectable agricultural school and uh, agricultural university in Lima, Peru. And uh, we worked with Adolfo, and I asked Adolfo, "Could you?" plant some more asparagus because this is driving me crazy. We booked this asparagus and then we don't get it and my customers get upset. And earlier that day, he had talked about a piece of property about five hours north. So we drove up there that day. I said, let's go take a look at it. And we, right there at the restaurant uh, in this little town, did a little, little, little pro forma on a piece of note paper. Just, okay, what would it cost to put an acre of asparagus in? Okay, what's the land going to cost? We did a little quick little pro forma. I said, let me get back to you on this. So I went home, talked to my dad about it. Mm-hmm. My dad was a very forward-thinking guy. I mean, he was I mean, he was in his mid-70s, and he was very much pro, let's do it. So we bought the property mm-hmm. and put the infrastructure. It was a bare piece of ground, but it was yeah. a good piece of ground. Right. Bought the property and put the infra- infrastructure in place. So now, fast forward to today, uh, we have since taken the asparagus out. Asparagus is good for about 12 years or so. Then you mm-hmm. have to replant. Well, there's better crops that to grow than asparagus. The, the cash flow is good with asparagus, which is why we planted that early on, but going into tree fruits yeah. and avocados and citrus and now persimmons has been a better way for us to go. So I also oversee that project. Mm-hmm. I've been down to Peru three times this year and I go back in August. So that's been keeping me a little bit on the busy side. Well, and you're about to head to California today to go check out some tasting room yes, ideas. Yes, I'm going, I'm going down to uh, Sonoma and Napa just to Get some ideas. You know, we're always looking to improve and to That's a good keep business that, trip to that, take, keep, too. Keep that progress going. And it is, it is work. It's <laughs> going to be fun, but it is work, too. So, Yeah, that would, that would be a perk of the job, for, for sure. And then Aloro has a tasting room. Yes, yes. Uh, so folks can come and... Yeah, we're open Thursday through Monday. And uh, it's a pretty site. It's yeah. just outside of Newburgh and Sherwood. And again, I think our, our focus, again, is, uh, is really delighting people when they come to our, to our tasting room. We really... Focus, of course, on making really good wine. Yeah. And I think Aloro punches above its weight for its size. We get, we get some really nice scores, and I give that tribute 
a tribute to the site, which is an outstanding vineyard site, and to our winemaker, Tom, who just does a beautiful job in the winery. Nice. Well, I look forward to trying some. Thank you so much for stopping in before your trip. It's been uh, great talking to you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for my conversation with David Namarnik. If you've missed any of the previous podcasts, you can find them at our website at kink.fm. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Portland 50 podcast wherever you're listening. The Portland 50 is a podcast series celebrating Kink's 50th anniversary, and it's about the people who dreamt, built, and championed the innovation, growth, and uniqueness of Portland. The series is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.